21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Run Your Life podcast. The purpose behind this podcast is to dissect and examine what striving for both personal and professional excellence genuinely means. Each guest that I have on my show is driven by having a deep sense of purpose in their life, and it's this purpose that fuels their motivation to not only be their best, but to also make a difference in the world around them. Each guest has a very unique journey of ups and downs that has helped them to develop the resilience needed to push on in the most proactive ways possible in their lives. The ability to be relentless and to push on through adversity and hardship requires a winning mindset, but it also requires specific skills that are needed to be put into action with consistency in their lives. It's this mindset and these skills that I strive to unpack with my guest in each episode in order to better understand their own pursuit of excellence in their life and their work. In today's episode, I had the privilege to interview Sean Livingston. Sean is a 10-year military veteran having served in Iraq during his time in the military. Having sustained a serious back injury while serving, he required long-term use of narcotic painkillers to get through each day due to the intense pain he was experiencing as a result of the back injury. Over the course of two years, military doctors continued to prescribe these meds to Sean, which resulted in him developing a severe opioid addiction. This is when everything began to unravel for Sean in his life. After finishing his time in the military, Sean's life spiraled further downward. Feeling lost and displaced, he turned to heroin to ease his physical and emotional pain. It was this heroin addiction that led to his arrest and landed him in prison for a period of time on drug possession charges. Almost three years ago, Sean was facing a 15 to 20 year prison sentence for drug possession charges. But in that very dark and desperate moment, he had the internal strength to turn his life around. You'll hear about his extraordinary journey and how physical activity, in particular running, helped to transform his life. Sean is now an up-and-coming ultra-marathoner, motivational speaker, and has devoted his life to serving others. It's this service to others that has given him a clear sense of deep purpose in his life. Sean opens up about his life and his struggles in this episode, but also shares the amazing work he is doing with disadvantaged youth and with other military veterans who also struggle from opioid addictions. It was a genuine honor to interview Sean. 
Without further ado, my episode with the inspiring Sean Livingston. Okay, Sean, uh, thanks for being on the show. It's it's funny because we just spent the the last 20 minutes trying to work our way through technical issues and everybody is always talking about how technology is making the world a better place, but uh, tech, <laughs> yeah, technology always causes so many problems also. Right, absolutely. Yeah, So, but we're connected, so you're talking on your phone. Usually we, I do my podcasts on Skype where there is video so I can see my guests and they can see me, but we're actually going to do this um, on your phone. So people have already heard a little bit about you in the introduction to the podcast, but I guess let's just jump right into it. And um, I guess what you can first share with my listeners is the current work that you're doing, and then we'll start to work backwards uh, from there. All right, so uh, my, my days are filled up pretty much with, uh, I work with other veterans in a, a treatment center here in Austin, Texas. Um, I help facilitate some classes there, and then I'm on the board of the treatment center where I give input on uh, what's working, what's not working, what could be better stuff like that. Um, I'm actually the first first person that's ever went to the treatment center to ever to ever sit on the board. So it was kind of, it was really cool for them to ask me, uh, walk into a room with the guys with a bunch of suits and there's, then there's me sitting there with all my tattoos and all that. And uh, I also uh, mentor at-risk youth at a school called uh, American Youth Works here in Austin. And it's a uh, they're really, really good kids. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't sure what to expect when I first walked in there, but uh, they're they're kids that 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 have made the the decision that to uh, get their life, you know, on on track. You you start to realize that they're kids that have been dealt just a a tough hand, and some have come from you know very rough home life, and uh, some have had drug problems, some have been in trouble with the law. Some have just had kids early, but uh, the school is like an all-inclusive, you know, helps them, helps them get a trade, helps them uh, get their diploma or their GED, whichever one they're looking for, and then uh, tries to set them up for success. Right. So you're, um, you're a motivational speaker, and um, a lot of the work that you're doing is, is based on you overcoming um, a heroin addiction. and. One of the reasons why I wanted to connect with you, and I, I shared a little bit in our emails back and forth, was that addiction and depression uh, really decimated my family. And I, I lost a brother to suicide, and I lost another brother to drug addiction. Uh, but I kind of found sport, and that that was my saving grace. And I know when I reflect back on my own uh, past, it was definitely sport and playing in a competitive team environment and that feeling of brotherhood and camaraderie that that really allowed me to stay outside the reach of addiction. Can you talk to people about um, how running has has really changed your life? And then we'll work back to to the addiction and what you went through with that. Right. Um, well, my, my my mother is. She worked in. A, she's a professor, a teacher education professor. And she's worked in uh, physical education and all that. And so she's always told me my whole life, I was always an athlete, but whenever I was going through my tough times, depression and anxiety, all these different mental health problems and addiction problems, she would always tell me to 
go out for a walk, go out for a run, go exercise. But it was such a hard, you know, it's, it's, it's such a daunting task. You know, it's, it's a very hard pump to get over. And so I, I started running. I Once I had gotten sober, I just looked to start getting healthier and started eating better and uh, was going on long walks. And always having been an athlete, I felt guilty when I would go on these walks. I'm like, man, I'm not... I'm not some old man yet. Why am I not running? And uh, once I got going, I just, it just, it made, I had tried to get sober, you know, probably a dozen other times and nothing had ever stuck for me. And uh, there was something about running that just started making connections in my brain that just hadn't been made in a long time. And so I started running and I would, I would come back to where I was at and just, I mean, I was just ready to go kill the day. Um, it was making me, it, it started believing in all areas of my life. It made me more outgoing, it made me more positive. It made me decide to, you know, make better choices when I was, you know, going to eat lunch or breakfast or something like that. And so, I mean, it just, it just gave me this mental clarity. You know, it's like I started using it as a form of like meditation and, I do all my best thinking and problem solving when I'm running. And I mean, it's never, never in a million years would I have ever have dreamt, you know, for years, doctors, you know, the, the doctors at the VA would tell them I was feeling depressed or this, and it was, you know, medicine, medicine, medicine. And, uh, you know, running was able to give me something that pills, you know, and, and a doctor never could. And Sean, when you when you think about your life, and one of the questions that I that I have, and this is a, a, a really a reflective question for myself, is a when I think back at, at my own life, uh, even kind of before I got into, I was always very active growing up, um, but I I didn't really start playing team sport like football. I play I say American football because I'm. I've lived outside of uh, North America for the last 20 years, so um, we have to clear, uh, de- define it as American football. Otherwise, people think it's soccer. But be, I played competitive American football in high school and university and in a travel league between high school and university. And But when I reflect back into earlier years in my life, there was definitely a sense of uh, loneliness that I felt. It's hard to describe, but... I think that was the first signs of possible depression or maybe anxiety. But I know that you were an athlete, that you played basketball growing up and you were active. But did you feel growing up, did you feel any kind of hint of depression or anxiety or loneliness? Um, yeah, I, 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 def- I definitely think so. You know, it only got worse as I got older with, you know, I, I, I think that's where the drugs and alcohol ended up coming into play. It was me trying to, like, put that Band-Aid on, fill a hole, you know, a hole inside me that I, I knew something wasn't right. But, yeah, I, w- I was definitely emotional, depressed. I was never really suicidal when I was young and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I would definitely... I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I would think it would be normal for any young person to go through that. I don't know that it was severe or anything like that. But, yes, I definitely think there was a hint of depression and anxiety as I was, as I was growing up. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, I've done a lot of research into that. And it's kind of that idea that um, many people bring those feelings or have those feelings 
growing up and it's just not discussed, you know? So you don't know that it's, that it's good or bad. It, you just, it is what it is. But when you reflect back, when you do suffer from addiction issues or depression or anxiety issues, and you reflect back, those were the first warning signs, you know? So I think that your story, I, can you just tell people you were um, a veteran? So you, I think you were in the military for 10 years, right? Yes. Yeah, so what years were you um, in the military? Did you serve? So uh, right, after, right after 9-11, I joined the Air Force, basically right out of high school. I joined the Air Force Reserve. And I got activated almost immediately. So I did six years in the Air Force. And then uh, I was just young and naive. And at the time, I, I, was a, I was a crew chief on C-130 aircraft. So at the time, I was young and naive and was just like, I'm going to get out and I'm going to do this as a civilian. My whole thing, you know, after joining for 9-11 was I didn't want to go to school. So that was like my, I thought the military was going to be my ticket out of going to school come to find out to be anything in the military, you have to go to school. So when I got out and tried to do my job civilian-wise, I quickly realized that you need, you know, the, the civilian qualifications and all that. So for about two years, I kind of started to lose my way and was trying to figure out what I was going to do, trying to get back in the Air Force, and uh, they just weren't accepting prior service at the time. So eventually that lead, or led me to, to join, join the Army, and then I did four years uh, in a tour, a tour in Iraq with the, with the Army. So you, you were in, uh, were you, what years were you in, in uh, Baghdad? I was in 08, 09. Okay. And, uh, and you, so you... We went, we went through Baghdad to get to get to where we were going. Uh, okay, okay. And that's where you had sustained. So that that this might be a good time to kind of frame the context for, um, you know, where things kind of went down a slippery slope with you because it was, it was during that time, I think, that you sustained a, was it a back injury or? Yeah, we were actually, we were training to go to Iraq. Okay. And, uh, I just we were doing the, we were doing these drills where you're basically you, you have on all your gear you know your your really heavy vest and helmet and weapon and all that and you you drop down and you pop back up and you you know run for a couple seconds drop back down and they're basically conditioning you for you you know to be in all your gear and all that stuff and I had just come up one time and had this just this little tweak in my back and I just kept going, you know, like it was, like it was nothing. And, uh, the next morning I went to wake up and I couldn't even sit up out of bed. I had to like roll off and I'm, it was, I couldn't even, it was shooting down my right side. And so I couldn't even step forward with my right leg. It was like I was dragging it around and then come to find out, uh, I had two herniated discs oh, and it was pinching my sciatic nerve. And so, unfortunately, in the, in, the, in the military, you know, if there's a number number one, I was I'm always been a competitive person, and number two, in, in the military, if you're especially around wartime, if you're not if you're not available to fight, then you're kind of worthless to them. So there's definitely this, you know, this culture that if 
if, if you're not ready to go fight that you're like trying to get out of it and I you know I, that was that was never me I didn't that's not what I wanted so at the time in the military there just I don't think there was the education about the opioid epidemic or anything like that and so they just put me on painkillers and started giving me shots of uh, of cortisone and I would feel you know I'd feel better for that for you know a moment and I'd run back rush right back out there and I just continued to injure it worse and worse and so the cortisone shots and the pills were just you know really masking the pain I wasn't allowing it to heal or anything like that and so you know the the pills you know I, I was taking them as the doctor ordered but they just left me on them because the pain continued and then being over in Iraq and uh, you know jumping up and down off vehicles always wearing your gear um, it, it just it just kept getting worse and worse and then when I had come back to the once we had gotten back from deployment um, that's a lot of things in my life started going bad and the, that's kind of you know the real time when the the opioid or the opioid addiction like really took over my life yeah and and what I wanted to ask you was um, have you heard of dr. Gabor mate I know. Yes, I've okay. heard that name. Yeah, so he he's just phenomenal. The work that he has done with with addiction helped me to, um, I guess, better understand the pain and suffering that my brothers went through, and that mm-hmm. some of the struggles that I had with darkness and depression, it helped to really. Um, give me more clarity around that and and he's just he's amazing the the way that the the work that he has done and he worked I mean a lot of addiction experts never really worked hardcore in the trenches but he worked in the trenches in Vancouver in the worst parts of Vancouver working with um, addicts every day for 12 years so he knows addiction inside out and one of the things that he, he says about addiction is that we're always asking the wrong question. The question is always, why are you addicted? Why are you addicted? And, and that's what people always ask. And when I would see my brother go through his horrible um, bouts of, of heroin addiction, and I was always like, why, why are you doing this to yourself? Why, why, why? But what Dr. Gabor Mate says is why the addiction is not the question. It's why are you in pain? Because it's the heroin that fills the void or it's the whatever it is that fills the void. So it's like for years, he says that we addiction experts have been asking the wrong questions. So when you think back to, you know, being given these drugs for your back and and um, what Gabor Mate says is a lot of people, 90 percent of people that go through um, some kind of physical trauma will go on pain uh, opiates, but they do not become addicted. But it's that 10% or that 15% that might become addicted. So can you talk more to that time when you were being given these meds and what that might have been filling within yourself beyond the pain? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's the, the one thing about addiction that, that you come to realize is, is, is addiction doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care if you're, you know, rich, poor, black, white, from what kind of family you're from. It doesn't care. And I just, 
in, in my personal belief, I think there's people that are predisposed, you know, they have the, they have the allergy inside them. And then there's also, you know, the stuff you've been through and all that. And so, like you were saying earlier, the, um, you know, the, the, the depression as a, as a, as a kid and all that. And I, I just think, I, I just think, you know, I was, I was unhappy, unhappy with who I was. Um, and, uh, you know, just insecurity and definitely, you know, fear about life, feel fear of dealing with people and, you know, wanting to fit in, wanting to be liked by other people. And, you know, the easiest crowd as a young person to fall into was the, the young party crowd. And like, it was, accepted and what I thought was fun. And so I think it was just trying to fill all that stuff. You know, in all honesty, I was always a partier and it just happened to be the, the opiates that, you know, once I was, once I started taking them, you know, I, they ended up, I, I was on them for about two and a half years before uh, I had ever tried to not take them. And as soon as I tried to not take them, then I started, you know, having, I thought I had food poisoning, but I was going through withdrawals. And so it, to, to anybody, once you start feeling that horrible feeling of withdrawals, it doesn't matter who it is. And, it, you know, in your mind, all you, you know, all I have to do is take this one pill or, or do this and this feeling will go away. It's a no to do it. Yeah. And what, but, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. I just, I want to add to what you're saying is this, this idea. And Dr. Gabor Mate talks about that idea that, what happens in people is really it's self-medicating because they're self-medicating to fill a void. So it's actually, um, it's, it's a way for the brain to fulfill that, that, that craving of something being lacking. And in this case with many, many, many people, uh, whether it be a shopping addiction or, or a sex addiction or alcohol, whatever it is, it's this idea that um, meaning in our life, dignity, purpose has been taken away, you know, and it's through, through environmental trauma, whatever it is. But that's what you're describing. And you're describing, um, you know, using drugs to fill that void where Dr. Gabor Mate says to a lot of his addicts, he says, well, you have to you have to really thank yourself in a way. He has a ceremony that he does with his addicts that have overcome like severe uh, drug addictions where he gets them to give thanks and gratitude to the drug itself because if it wasn't for the drug, they would have killed themselves. So that the drug allowed them to go through some tough times, but then you don't need it anymore. And in your case, you found running. And, and that's such a beautiful story that you're filling your, your voids with something so healthy, you know? Right. A, a big part of a big part of my message when I go speak at all these different places is, you know, I I look back when I got sober this time and and I really started asking myself what's different. Like, what did I do different that I didn't do the other dozen times I've tried to? And the on, the only thing I, I was able to come up with was, and like I accidentally found running. Like I didn't mean to set out and find running, but. I found something I was passionate about, which was running and like the the sense of accomplishment I got from doing some of these crazy races that I was doing, um, you know, feeling that medal go around my neck. You know, there was no more proud a moment as an adult that I've had as crossing the finish line for my first race and then putting that heavy medal around my neck and I was just like, oh man, I want this. And so, you know, running 
has gave me a, an avenue to, you know, as an addict, you're always telling your family like, oh, everything's okay. You're like painting the picture, everything's okay. And they've heard all these words before. They've heard the stories before. That, you know, you know. I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like, oh, it's going to be different this time and this and that. But running and running these races, I became passionate about it because it gave me something like physical to show my family. Like, here, look, you know, a heroin addict's not going out and running a hundred k and and stuff like that. And then, along with becoming passionate about running, was. The, the community of people that I found within the, the running community and the trail running community. And like I said earlier, you know, dealing with those stuff, I, the stuff I did as a kid that I think any kid, you know, wanting to belong, you know, wanting to find your real friends and your people, you know, with, with the insecurity of not having that and then finding that in the running community, you know, finding that passion and that purpose and then finding the community of good people to do it with, was absolutely life-changing. And so when I go speak to these places, it's, it's me telling people to get out, find something you're passionate about. You gotta get outside of your comfort zone. You know, luckily I ended up in Austin that has this amazing, you know, anything you wanna do, you can find here in Austin, music, art, whatever. So go out, find something to do, and find the good people to do it with. And I, you know, it, it made, it's changed my life. And, and that's that idea that uh, Gabor Mate says is that um, you are finding a, a, a much uh, greater purpose. Um, and one of the big things is that it's through um, human connection. And then once we actually make those, uh, make those connections with others and we feel that genuine bond and we feel the compassion that they have for us. Because when I, when I hear your story and the organization you belong to is, is back on my feet, right? Yeah. Yeah. They were actually, they were the, they just happened to be a little running group that was by the treatment center. I was at, and I started running with them. And then, you know, thankfully I I met, uh, met somebody who to this day is one of my best friends in the world. And she's who got me into trail running. Um, and I mean, it was just, it was the perfect, perfect stepping stone to get out into the running world. And, and, uh, you know, it, 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 it definitely helped me in that regard. Yeah. And I think it's that, again, going back to that idea of, of compassion and, and people, did the people know your story when you, when you joined that group? No, not fully. Um, you know, I got, I got to know them. Uh, they actually, so I ended up getting, uh, they gave me member of the year for that group. And when they gave me member of the year, they shot a video and that's kind of what, what originally started letting people know about my story. And so we posted this video, it's called unconditional. It's on YouTube, uh, back to my feet unconditional. And so we, that video got posted online and I just started getting, an overwhelming amount of messages back from people and uh, just people that were saying that, you know, they were suffering from the same type of problems and, and they were going to start looking into running or they were going to start looking into sobriety and, you know, telling me about childhood trauma and just all this stuff. And so the, the director that had shot the video, I, uh, I reached back out to him and was like, Hey man, you got to read some of these messages. Like they're very, very, you know, deep and profound and this, this is crazy. I can't believe the support it's getting. And so, uh, 
once I had showed him that and we saw just how many people, you know, my story was, I, I say all the time, I don't feel like there's anything all that special about my story. It's just, it's my story, but there's, there's something about it that seems to resonate with people and it's let me know that, you know, every, everywhere I speak, everyone I talk to, everybody connected, related to, or knows somebody that's suffering from addiction. So that's why it's like such a, you know, that's why I think people gravitate towards it. So that is what originally, uh, gave him the idea to sh turn that, that short video into a full length documentary. So, uh, we've been shooting the documentary woke the monster here for about the past six months. We got a couple more months to go and then, uh, we're going to put it in film festivals and try to get it on some larger platforms. Yeah. And it should be on larger platforms. And, um, it's such an amazing story, as you say, and you say it's your story, uh, but other people in hearing the story, and, and I think this is the big thing, is that the act of vulnerability itself and, and you just laying it all out there and speaking your authentic truth ultimately is what gives people permission to do the same. So you're giving people permission to do the same and then they reach out and then they start sharing their story and, and that's what needs to be done with addiction and depression and anxiety and all of these things is to talk about it uh, because for so long it hasn't been talked about. So your documentary, Woke the Monster, um, your 100 miler is featured in there. And that's that's an extraordinary feat in itself. And the one thing I want to say, and, and correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, if I have this this fact wrong, but you went from 260 pounds to 195 pounds. Yes, that's amazing. So and, and that, that was over a course of how long? I had started, like, like I had said before, I, I had started to eat healthy and, and go on long walks. So I would say I started to lose some weight there, but then when I was running, it just kind of, you know, melt, melted off me in a matter of no time. So I would say all within a, within a year. Yeah. And I, I've got a friend, um, a very inspiring friend. Uh, her name's Katerina. She's from Italy. I had her on the podcast last week and, and she has lost a hundred pounds in the last year herself. Uh, through physical activity and really finding her purpose. And she's so driven to help people understand that anybody can do it if they set their mind to it. And your story is, is a living example of that. So take us through um, that 100 miler now. And how scary was it? How daunting of a task was it to sign up for that and to ultimately do it. And you did it in 27 hours, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, like the, the, the one friend I spoke of earlier that my friend Penny that got me into the, the trail running world, she saw something in me that, that I just didn't see. And so I remember the first time I had ran 10 miles with her, I was like, Oh my, like I couldn't believe that I, I could do it. And so she was helping me get signed up for my races and all that. And, uh, so my first race was a 10 K. My second race was a 30 K. My third race was a 50 K. And then I, I, I had this soft goal to do a hundred K in under, in under a year of running. And, uh, I did that and then, uh, started to, I knew people ran hundred milers and all that. And I was like, man, you know, I was like, I want, you know, I wonder if I could do that, but I didn't, you know, when I signed up, I was just, I was very confident and under the impression that I could do it. And then 
you, you, you get out there deep into the deep into 100 miles and then all of a sudden you're rethinking your whole strategy like what was i thinking why would i sign up for this how describe because i just saw the trailer to woke the monster and at one point you're like fuck this i can't do it yeah and what point of the race was that was about mile 75 (laughs) and uh once the so just running 100 you know there's so many things that start going into factoring into these these ultra marathons that i do and uh you know if you're calorie deficient your your hydration your electrolytes but then all of a sudden you you add the nighttime sleep deprivation on top of it all and it just starts playing you know very crazy tricks on your mind and so that was i'd come into that aid station it was about mile 75 and i had been running the probably the last 15 miles you know alongside of another guy and we were talking and we had just gotten separated in in the in the darkness and the you know we're deep in the alabama alabama woods on the appalachian trail and uh so it was just a super low point and my brain started telling me you're like oh you know if you my back was killing me uh and my brain started telling me you know if, if you hang it up in mile 75 who's, who's gonna snicker at that like that you know there's most people who run 75 miles in their life and uh and i just had that that super low moment and i was i was ready to give up but Luckily, that guy that I had been running with, uh, he popped back up in my vision and looked at me. He's like, you ready to go? And so you could see there, I kind of yell in frustration going back out there. And luckily, a couple miles after that, I had snapped out of it. And uh, that nighttime was, you know, probably one of the the roughest times physically in my life, just because you're not, it's nighttime, you're more sore, there's more lactic acid than I had ever felt before. You know, I'm super calorie deficient, sleep deprived, and, and you're just ready to give up. And so getting through that night was was horrible. But then that sun comes up the next morning, and it's the first, you know, during during the nighttime, I, I know how long it would take me to run 10 miles normally. And then now all of a sudden it's taking you three times that, three, three times the amount of time to, to cover any ground. So you feel like it's just never going to end. But then when that sun came up the next morning was like the first glimpse of, of hope where I was like, man, you know, I, I think I can finish this thing. But the, the power of the, the mind, right? And, and that's what that proves is the um, untapped potential, you know, that, that the, the mind has. And um, that's a, an example of, of being able to tap into that to be able to ultimately reach your goal. And I guess one of the things I want to ask you, and um, I don't know if you have an answer for this, but the reason why I want to ask you is that I guess from my own point of view, going through kind of the stuff that I went through and, and one of the things that I, when I was playing university football, I was a quarterback and a punter. I was captain of the team and I desperately wanted to be the best punter in Canada. Quarterbacking, I mean, I, 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 I was a good quarterback, but I wasn't going to be the best in the nation. But punting, I desperately wanted to hold the title of best punter, at least in my, in my province. So kind of like a, a state, right? And um, I had uh, 
fought really hard all season and you're 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 playing football in the the elements it's cold it's windy up in Canada right and um, I I had a great season then I finished strongly and I ended up winning um, fir- first team all all like all province punter and in that moment it's like I wanted that so badly and that was almost like a drug in itself that it was a it was filling a void of um, not having confidence in myself. So I needed this award to prove that I was worthy. And I remember I, I finally won it and it was announced to the team and the whole team cheered. And my buddy who went on to play professionally for 17 seasons, he won um, all, all province linemen. We went to the football field. We climbed on the uprights. We sat on top of the uprights we, and we had a couple beers and we congratulated ourselves and celebrated. Then he left and I said, I'm going to stay here. And in that moment, I broke down in tears. And I think it was because I felt so shitty still. And and winning that award in that moment meant nothing to me because it didn't fill this eternal unhappiness that I had. So when you look at what you've gone through with your addiction and you found running and you're you're getting these medals you say now but it's these extrinsic rewards like how do you find that balance between you know accomplishing many things but also filling that void of inadequacy and and uh, just filling that void of loneliness whatever it is like where you don't need medals for that but that the medals are actually really good right and man you you really just took the words right out of my mouth. That was that was so well said. Uh, when after after I did the hundred miler, I went through like a you know like almost a, a runner's depression where you know my body was just super broken down. You know I think the you know the the dopamine and serotonin was still leveling out, and so I started wondering and asking myself, you know, I've now you know I've I started to win races. I'm, I'm getting you know I'm going farther in this than I ever thought I did. But, you know, what if I got hurt? You know, what what would that do to me? What if I couldn't run anymore? You know, I have to be more than just this runner. And so, luckily, I've, I've come to realize that running and running these races and, and all that has just given me a, an avenue to kind of reach people. And um, so, like, what, what fills that hole for me in that void is, is working with others and helping people you know, the, the kids at the school or the, the guys at the treatment center using my past experience to help others get through it is truly what, you know, is what fuels me. And luckily running has given me, you know, the ability and the kind of the exposure to be able to do that on a, a bigger scale than what, what I normally would have been able to. Yeah. And that's so important that you, you know, that you have come to understand that. And it's like, you're now serving others, but you're, you're finding much greater purpose through your, um, you know, through what everything that you're doing, you're now finding much greater purpose through that element of human connection and serving others and making a difference in that way, um, which is much, you know, more, which is more important or better than any medal running medal will, will ever give you. Um, 
So when they're, they're, it's, whenever whenever I work with the guys at the treatment center, they know me as like the the guy that ran the hundred mile race. You know, they they end up hearing about me before I ever get there. You know, when they're a new new patient there, and uh, they all they always talk to me about the race, and they're always like, "Man, like I could never do that." And the cool thing about all that is, is I tell them, I'm like, you, you don't understand. Like, there's nothing special about me. Two years ago, you know, a little over two years ago, I was sitting in your exact same seat with that same mindset that I couldn't do that. And if I can go out and do this, then you for sure can. Yeah, and that's such a great message. And one of the things I want to ask you as we kind of um, move towards the end of the podcast is, is, you know, and I return back to the idea of Gabor Mate, Dr. Gabor Mate's work. And, and what he says is that the, the biggest driver for relapse based on Dr. Mate's work is the idea of the inability to control stress in our lives. And you're doing, you're doing amazing things, right? And, that's one of the things I was not worried about with your story, but if you do get injured, what do you have to turn to to fill the void? And you've already made that very clear that it's the act of helping others. But it's also, according to his work, is stress itself and increased levels of cortisol in our body. So how are you ensuring that you have mechanisms to deal with stress so that you can stay healthy and on the right path. Um, so this, I, w- I was talking to, with my mother about this recently, and when when I got sober this time, I, I realized this was the first time that I had kind of attacked addiction from all angles, meaning like mentally, spiritually, and, and physically. And so, like I was saying, you know, if if I got injured, if I didn't have running. I, I like to think that I would, you know, whether it be swimming, biking, I would find some other physical, physical activity to do, to do, you know, as like a form of meditation. But I, I kind of feed those three areas in my life, and I mean, it, it's it's really worked, really worked for me. So as, as for the physical aspect, you know, I, I would I would find something to do that that would replace running. And you know, hopefully, get the the same profound effect. But I think just the benefit of what I get for working with others, and always making sure, you know, a lot of the guys, addiction is such a selfish thing, and so everything becomes about me, 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 me. And once I started, you know, when you live your life for me, 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 nobody wants to be around that. So nobody's helping you. You know, nobody wants to be your friend. Nothing like that. And the second I started living my life selfless and helping people and worried about others before I worried about myself, you know, all this, you know, this really, this richness came back into my life with friendship and, you know, honesty and people that care and all that stuff. So I I think as long as I, as long as I keep feeding those three aspects of my life, you know, I, I I hope I'll stay in the, the same strong place I'm at today. And in terms of reconciliation, you know, I know that that's one of the big things with with um, addicts is reconciliation to friends and family. And where are you at with that in this process? So I mean, every with with my family, every, everything is, is has been amazing. My my sister, as you can tell from the, the if you see the trailer of the documentary, my sister has definitely been the the, the toughest person to to get back. Um, 
but it just took patience and consistency. You know, luckily running and running these races has, has given me something to show them and so that they know I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm doing now. I'm not just saying. And so uh, my, my mother was just down to, down to visit me uh, last week. Um, everything with my family is, uh, is, is, it couldn't be in a better place. I have my... So I have like two sides of my family. I got my dad's side, my mom's side. My dad's side lives in New York, so that is a that is still an ongoing process. Just because I don't get much FaceTime with them and to to see them, but they I'm on speaking terms with them all. They they know they know I'm doing well, and so it's just a, a process that takes patience and consistency. Yeah, and sticking to your routines and and doing the things you're doing. So. Um, you know, your story is amazing, Sean, and I look forward to, um, you know, seeing where it goes and your continued work and where can people find you on social media? Um, so I'm primarily on, on Instagram. That's, that's where most people get, get a hold of me at. And it's, I am underscore Sean Livingston, S H A W N, uh, I am underscore Sean Livingston, and um, I have people all the time, daily, that reach out to me that, you know, ask for advice about, you know, their their son who's suffering from addiction or anything like that. I am I am on Facebook, it's just Sean Livingston, um, and then uh, there's SeanLivingston.com and then WokeTheMonster.com. So people can get a hold of me and follow me on, on any of those, but I'm primarily on Instagram. Okay, great. And just to close off the show, if you had to project forward, you know, the, you know, one of the questions uh, people are often asked is if you could go back in time and give yourself advice, what would it be? But I want to project forward 10 years from now and say, what would your biggest hope be? You know, what will you have accomplished 10 years from now? Uh, to make your own dent in the world, what would that look like in ten years? What are you hoping to accomplish? Um, so when Andrew, the director of the documentary, had had originally uh, reached out to me to do it, I, I told him that anything anything that will help give me a, a bigger platform to be able to use my story and my experience to help people, then then. Then I'm, I'm all for it. So hopefully, in, in ten years, I'm, I'm you know I'm doing a TED talk or I'm speaking to large audiences and and, and helping as many people as I can. Uh, I also I have I have the preliminary plans to to start a a sober house and in that sober house I'm going to incorporate a a running program where they'll have like you know a certain amount of miles they'll hit each week when they and then you know build themselves up to a race. And uh, just kind of help them get into that fitness mindset, introduce them them into that community of, of, of supportive people. And so, I mean, my my primary goal is to just continue down the same path, just like I did with my family, just being consistent and uh, and patient, and you know, taking my opportunities and getting in front of crowds and speaking to people and just hopefully inspiring more people and motivating as many people as I can. Yeah, that's great, man. Um, that's a great way to to end the show. And I'm just going to close off the show and, and then stop recording. And then I just wanted two more minutes just to say goodbye to you um, after we're, we're done recording. Um, thanks a lot for being on the show, Sean. Absolutely. It's, it was an honor. It was an honor for you to have me. I really right. appreciate it. Yeah. Everybody, thanks for listening to my episode with Sean Livingston. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. 
Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassett. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.